Well, take your Bible and go to 1 Peter. And as I said a minute ago, we are entering the final few verses in this book. I know that there's always dog people in this Bible study. And you know how I feel about that. But are there any cat people? All right, there's a few, few of you. Like, how committed are you to the cats? Are you, like, do you celebrate the National Cat Day? Do you know when the National Cat Day is? Let's see how committed you are. Anybody? Oh, bunch of fakers. You're not that committed. There is a National Cat Day. It's October 29th. So put in your calendar, you cat people, and celebrate your little creature. 1029, National Cat Day. I have no idea what you would do with your cat that day. Please don't do anything embarrassing, like dress him up or her up. But uh, I found that out today. You know, there's 38 species of large cats. And you begin to kind of do some analysis of animals and creation. Whenever I do that, read some more information about anything out of creation. It just makes me be in awe of God. 38 different species of large cats. They range from two and a half to 11 feet long, ranging from 42 to 930 pounds. Those are monsters. And you can kind of see the cycle through of the different cats that God has created. These large cats can be found in deserts, forests, mountain areas, cold temperatures, in tropical areas, they can be found in all sorts of altitudes at sea level and then up to 6,000 meters in altitude. Now, we know that some of these are ferocious. There's some crazy stories you can read about, like mountain lions, even here locally in SoCal, uh, some wild stories in Mission Viejo. Uh, but these are, this is God's creation as he tries to Display his power. Well, the king of all the animals is who? The lion. Come on. Lion. What? No. You know, imagine like little lions that size forever. Like little guys running around, but still ferocious and the growl and all that with a full mane. Okay, go back. Yeah. Uh, That would be awesome. The problem is they grow up and they get less cute. So that's the problem with cats. Yep. I think that's fake. (laughs) It doesn't have any feet. Look at the bottom. There's no feet. (laughs) That's not the king of the animals, by the way. But the lion is the king of the animals. And they have existed all over the world. From Africa to Asia to America to India to the Middle East. Today, most of the lions that are on the planet are just south of the Sahara Desert. There's about 23,000 lions alive. Now, African lions have been admired for their majesty, for their power, for their courage, for their strength. And a full-grown lion gets to be about six to seven feet long. That's without a three-foot tail. And about four feet high, weighing between 370 and 500 pounds. It's a beast. It's a massive creation of God. The heaviest animal ever, lion ever recorded is 826 pounds, 826 pounds in size. And they can run as fast as 50 miles an hour and leap up to 36 feet. Their claws 
are one and a half inches long, and they retract when necessary. And only the lion has a mane, symbolizing its majesty. It's interesting that lions hunt at night primarily, and whenever they roar, it's a symbol that they're about to start hunting, and so they usually roar at night and then in the morning, kind of that hunting period, or before they get into something even vicious. But they eat unlike other animals, and they'll eat rodents, little things, baboons, but then they'll eat that buffalo and a hippo and an elephant and a giraffe if the right one comes along. They can eat up to 90 pounds in a single meal. Imagine that. Some of you weigh 90 pounds. You're perfect for the lion. Here's another detail. They don't chew their food. They just swallow it. And just begin to make connections to what we see in our passage for this evening of why the Bible calls the devil a lion. If you think about ever being face-to-face with a lion, what will happen is you want to walk backwards and always looking him in the eye because the second you look away, and you can find videos of this online, the second you look away, he pounces because at that moment you have become his prey and he's all over you. And you think about that little detail in reference to Satan and the responsibility we have to always be against Satan and not be looking away ignorant of his devices and his attacks on your Christian journey. You see, the lion is the perfect illustration of what the devil can do and intends to do in your Christian life. As the lion prowls, as the lion roars, as the lion swallows its prey, so does the devil. And in our passage, Peter, as he begins to close the letter, focuses on something that is extremely sobering. I'd like to read that passage for us right now. It's only a few verses, and it'll take our um, attention for the rest of the evening to understand exactly how do we interact with the devil. Beginning in verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 5, this is what we read. Peter says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself Perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter's final words are intended to help us understand exactly the relationship that a Christian has to Satan. Now remember, Peter is writing to persecuted Christians who are scattered all over the Roman world, primarily in modern-day Turkey. They've moved north east from Rome because of persecution under the emperor Nero, who began to uh, kill Christians in a very vicious way. And he began to take their possessions. And so they lost their property. They lost their friends. They lost their family members. And so they began to migrate in order to avoid the persecution. And in order to encourage them amidst this suffering, Peter writes this letter. And so he repeatedly uses the word suffer. Suffer appears 
multiple times in this letter because that is the focus. 14 times or so it appears in this letter. But in the middle of this context of suffering and this climate of suffering, in chapter 3, verse 10, Peter says that the one who desires to live the good life. He says that in order to help us understand that even though the world might be falling apart around you, your life, your family, your situation in life might be horrific. Even in the middle of all that, you can still have the good life. Now, it doesn't mean that you'll get wealth and you will be completely content and happy and at peace and everything will be perfect. No, it just means that even when things are difficult, it's possible for a believer to enjoy the good life. And he explains that position that he's arguing for in three ways. You can divide the book of 1 Peter in three acts. The first one focuses on our life in Christ. That is, your good life in Christ, your experience in, in this world has to be connected to Jesus Christ. He's the focus of the first chapter and the beginning of the second chapter. And so he becomes the one who gives us stability and the foundation of the good life. Then beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through chapter 4, verse 6, he then focuses on our life in the community. The people are watching your life. The secular society is observing and listening to you. More so than ever, it seems like, the Christians are being watched and being opposed at times for their desire to meet together. You know, in God's kindness, the church had a lawsuit for a year and we won it last week. But guess what? We went through a lot of opposition from the community, from the state. You should go back and look at LA Times articles published just two days. And then one day before the decision was made, uh, uh, August 31st, LA Times just went hardcore against our church to try to somehow sway the decision against us. The world is watching. And in that, we're supposed to be those who have hope. Chapter 3, verse 18 says that people, rather, verse 15 rather, it says that we are to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everybody who asks to give an account for the hope that's in you. Do it with gentleness and reverence. People are hopeless. We've talked about that before. The this, this suicide statistics are out of control. We had a meeting today, earlier today, with Pastor John and a few other pastors, and we met two days prior thinking through all that. We're working on a document to help not just our church, but the churches in this nation. How do you process what's happening now and give people hope and give leadership of churches confidence and courage to move forward? But interestingly enough, Peter focuses on this hope and says, people want the same thing. And so they want to talk to you and understand this hope. And you, when you get to answer their questions, do so with reverence and gentleness. But there's a third area where we live our life, and that is in the church. So our, the good life that we experience is connected to Christ. It's lived out in the community, and it's also experienced in the church. That's us as Christians. And that is starting from vor, chapter 4, verse 7, going all the way to the end of chapter 5. And we talked about this two weeks ago, that as Peter closes this letter in this third act, in this third section, he has multiple audiences that he wants to address and wants to focus on as he closes this book. And he begins in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 4 by talking about the saints, that our responsibility as Christians is to serve the saints. Then he moves to talk about the suffering that we experience from sinners and how we are to endure that, understanding that it is the will of God for the moment. In the beginning of chapter 5, the first five verses focuses on shepherds in the church. 
Those who are leading us, who are pastoring us, the elders, the pastors in any church and the responsibility we have to submit and follow and the responsibility they have to teach and lead with kindness, not as lords over us. But then two weeks ago, we talked about our responsibility to surrender to God. Whatever happens in life, God is the audience. God is the one we aim to please. He's the one we aim to glorify. And we saw that from verses five through seven, that our life is to be a life that is surrendered to God. Well, tonight we focus on Satan. That's the next audience. That's the next point of conversation that Peter has. And now he wants to challenge Christians how to think about your enemy but your enemy. And he understands that while life is difficult and suffering dominates this letter, that even though we can enjoy God's blessings in this life still, even if you are suffering, even if you are being persecuted. And he says that primarily because when we come through all that, Paul says at the end of Romans chapter eight, that we are more than conquerors. We are victorious when we go through the suffering because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, which is in love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing, no created thing, he ultimately says. Yet there's somebody who wants to disturb all that, who wants to disrupt our experience in the church, in the community, in our relationship with Christ, and that is the devil. And so Peter gives three staccato urgent, immediate, comprehensive commands in verse eight and verse nine. He says, be sober, be on the alert, resist, resist him. In other words, we don't have the luxury to ponder if Satan is after us. We don't have the time to consider if he really wants to destroy our faith. The commands are grammatically stated in such a way that they demand immediate action. They demand an immediate response. And therefore, our response is to be aggressive, immediate, and total. And so tonight, I'd like to talk about the strategy that we should have in striving against the devil. The strategy that we should have in striving against the devil. And the first is to protect your mind. Protect your mind. Peter immediately goes in verse eight to the mind, be sober, be on the alert. Both of those commands have to do with the mind. Sober-minded is a better translation. Think soberly about your life. Why does he start there? Because the very first temptation that is recorded in the Bible, in that moment, Satan went after the mind. Satan's temptations begin with the mind. When he approached Eve, he said, first, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Isn't that what God said? But that's not what God said. He twisted, he distorted the command from God by messing with her mind. What she would have remembered God saying, he twists it. God said, you may eat of any tree in the garden except for one. He says, didn't God say you will not eat from any tree? Do you see that distortion? That's messing with the mind. Then in verse four, he says, you will not die. And in verse five, God knows that in the day that you do eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so now he promises something greater than she has in that moment, thinking that he can deliver. She believes him. 
and then the entire human race falls into sin. What we learn from Genesis 3 is that if Satan can cause you to doubt the word of God, he can cause you to disobey the word of God. And she began to doubt what God said. And for us, it's one book. That's what God said. And you begin to doubt it. The next step is disobedience. But that is characteristic of Satan from the very beginning. Jesus in John 8, 44 says he doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's Jesus' description of Satan. Multiple references to lying and deception. He twists, he lies, he overpromises. How deceptive is he? In 2 Corinthians 11.4, it says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That is how far he goes to distort his own person in order to get a person to sin, to get that individual to doubt the word of God. You see, Satan has no bounds in his deceptive tactics. Sometimes he'll directly contradict God, as in Genesis 3. Sometimes he'll play the charlatan in order to get people to begin to follow him and obey him and follow him over God. Can you imagine? So we just said this. Jesus says he's a liar. There's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie from his own nature. He's a liar and the father of lies. Okay. That means there is never a time when Satan speaks the truth. Fair? Can you imagine having a friend who always lies to you? Every single time that person opens his or her mouth, it's a lie. Now, would it be wise of you to believe that individual? That'd be foolish, naive. Because you know, every single conversation is a lie. Every single temptation from Satan is a lie. And yet we keep falling for it. That means we're foolish, naive. And so Peter tries to say, understand who you're dealing with. And therefore protect your mind. Have a sober way about yourself. Sober thinking, be on the alert. This is not the first time Peter tells him to be sober. Three times. And then in this book, it says to be sober. Chapter one, verse 13 says, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter four, verse seven, he says, the end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and be sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer. And then our passage. Did you notice that in every single text, sobriety is connected to the future? Every single time. Be sober, chapter one, and the grace will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus in the future. The end of all things is near. That's the future. Be sober. And here, be sober of spirit. And then in verse 10, you will enter into his eternal glory. Again, a futuristic outlook. Every single time Peter says this, he says, you're sober mindedness, your sobriety and how you think and how you protect your mind, it has a connection to your future. It affects where you're going and how fast you get there and how effectively you'll be on the way there. 
If you keep giving into Satan's lies, you will not be effective on your Christian journey. That's the idea here. And this trait of sobriety is expected in other parts of the New Testament of elders in 1 Timothy 3, of deacons in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, of older men in Titus 2, of faithful ministers who are supposed to be like athletes, disciplined, 2 Timothy 4, and then every single Christian. 1 Corinthians 15, 34, listen to this verse. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. That's a pretty clear statement. Be sober-minded and stop sinning. 1 Corinthians 15, 34, that's directed to all Christians. In other words, this idea isn't limited to a leader or a non-leader. It's to every single believer. All of us are supposed to be sober-minded. But there's only one other passage in the entire New Testament where sobriety is connected to Satan. That's in 2 Timothy 2.26. In 2 Timothy 2.26, Paul gives Timothy direction on how to interact with unbelievers. And he says this in verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And... Verse 26, they may come to their senses, that's the word there, sober thinking, and escape from the trap of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. In that context, he's talking about unbelievers who are trapped in Satan's temptations. And they're doing his will, they're unable to do God's will. And until they begin to think soberly, they're not able to escape that trap. Now, by application to believers, when we don't think soberly about Satan, about temptation, we are falling into the trap of the devil and we are now about to do his will. But again, that is characteristic of the unbeliever. And yet Christians fall into that as well. And we fulfill his will. Romans 6 talks about no longer fulfilling the will of the unrighteousness of the devil and only using your life, your body for righteousness. So Peter says, be sober minded, protect your mind. And then he says, be on the alert back in verse eight, be on the alert again, as, as the first command is urgent and comprehensive. So is this one. It demands immediate action. Be on the alert. And Peter picks up this word from Mark. Mark chapter 14, verses 34 through 38. Mark 14, 34 through 38 is the scene in Gethsemane when Jesus is praying and the disciples are doing what? Sleeping. And Jesus comes back three times and he tells them, be on the alert. Why? Well, ultimately, because the body is... uh, is willing, but the flesh is weak, but also because Satan is out to get you. Three times, the same exact command appears in Mark 14. Guess who's behind the writing of the gospel of Mark? Peter. Peter told his version of the Jesus story that he experienced with Jesus for three years to his disciple Mark, and Mark wrote it down. So then Peter basically adopts his own vocabulary from the gospel of Mark, And says, I remember 
when I was in the garden, in Jesus' worst temptation moment, and instead of praying with him, praying for him, praying for myself, for the other disciples, not to fall into the temptation of the devil, I was sleeping. And Jesus told me three times, be on the alert, be on the alert, be on the alert. Now he says, all you Christians, be on the alert, because the context also includes the devil, who at that point was all about getting rid of Jesus. But now he's all about getting rid of you and me. Therefore, Peter says, be on the alert. How bad was it in the garden of Gethsemane? It was Satan's finest hour. He had full power because Jesus says this in Luke twenty-two fifty-three: This is the hour and power of darkness. He brings all the demonic host against Jesus Christ in order to deviate him from the cross. Why should you protect your mind? Well, 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Ephesians 6.11 says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5 says, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So we keep watching and we keep praying so that we will not enter into temptation. As Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 26, 41. That's why we protect our minds. Because Satan has schemes, he has tactics, he has arrows that he shoots at us from Ephesians 6. And his goal is to destroy us. That's why we protect our mind. Because as I said from Genesis 3, it always begins in the mind. That's his first point of attack. If he can get you to think ungodly, unbiblically, incorrectly about who God is, who you are, what you're supposed to be doing with your life, how you're supposed to be following Christ, how you're supposed to be resisting the devil. If he can get you to change your understanding of all that, distort your perception of all that, the battle is half done. It's just a matter of time before you'll begin to act according to the new way of thinking. But in order to be successful in our struggle with Satan, we also need to perceive his aim. Perceive his aim. And we get that in the second half of verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's his aim. He wants to devour anyone. Anyone that, would be, that he would be able to devour. The adversary imagery is hostility. He's against you. He's your enemy. That's interesting. Three times from verses five to verse nine, Peter uses the idea of anti, anti somebody. So God is anti the proud in verse five. Satan is anti you in verse eight, the adversary. That's the word there, anti. Antitikos in Greek, if you want to know the word. Anti. And then in verse nine, now you resist him. You need to be anti-Satan. There's a lot of aggression and hostility and, and a warlike situation in this paragraph. The devil, that's the Greek word for Satan. Satan is the Hebrew version. The devil, diabolos, is the Greek version. He's the accuser. That's what that word means. 
He's the one who perpetually accuses. He accuses you by accusing you to your own conscience. You're not holy enough. You're not obedient enough. You're not good enough. You can't be saved if you said that, if you thought that, if you did that, if you want that. So he's accusing you in your own mind, trying to cause you to lack assurance. That's satanic. Those are his attacks. Now in the Bible, we know there's stories when he's accusing people before God, like Job, for example. So there is a supernatural reality about this as well that we're not aware of directly. But we certainly are aware of our own struggles in our own minds. And Peter says, he is whose adversary? Please look at verse 8. Whose adversary? Okay, what, what's the word before adversary? Let's, let's, let's make it simple. Okay, there's a lot of... What's the word? Your, right? Every single Christian, you're not exempt. No matter how holy you are, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how faithful you've been, no matter how gifted you are, you have an adversary. He's after every single person. And I think we forget that. I think we forget that the Satan actually hates you and wants to destroy you. And in verse 8, he wants to devour you. The word there is swallow, like a real lion who swallows his food, doesn't chew it. Satan just wants to completely swallow you in one shot if he could. Destroy your spiritual life completely. He is set against you. He's set against me. And then Peter says, how aggressively? So the first three commands that I talked about, they were in the past tense in the Greek language, which signify urgency, immediacy of us responding to what's about to take place here. But then when he talks about Satan prowling, roaring, And seeking, he puts all that in the present tense. In other words, Satan is continually preoccupied with roaring, prowling, and wanting to destroy you. That's his consistent preoccupation. He doesn't take a break. There's no pause in his stance against you. He never gives up. He wants to destroy your soul. This is the only place where Satan is identified as a lion in the Bible. So you have to think about real lions and the imagery that it, that evokes. Power, strength, anger, viciousness, craftiness, aggression. If you need help, go out on YouTube. And find some videos of a lion chasing its prey and being cunning. That's what Satan is doing. And Peter is intentionally using that imagery to remind you of who he is. And so he says, again, in verse 8, he's your adversary. He's the devil, which means he's the accuser. He's the accuser. So since the very beginning, he has the same strategy. Undermine your faith in God. He tried that with Adam and Eve. And the intent was to distort the word of God, thereby 
causing them to doubt the word of God in order to catapult the entire human race into sin. He was successful. Then you go to David's story. David's story in 2 Samuel 24 or 2 Chronicles 21. It says, Satan incited David to count his army. David was at the peak of his royal position. He's been successful in all the wars that he's fought. He has a huge army. So he says, I want to know how big my army is. Job, one of his commanders, intercedes and says, please don't do this. This is not going to turn out well for you. This is straight up pride. Look at the kingdom that I have built, right? Nebuchadnezzar says that. That's David's moment. David is so resolute. He's so prideful in that moment because Satan has incited him to do this. That he ignores his most faithful commander. He's a relative of David's, by the way, Job is. And he's so set on sinning that it doesn't matter what kind of accountability partner he had. Sometimes we find ourselves in the same place where people intervene and say, please don't do this. We beg you don't do this. This is going to destroy your faith. It's going to destroy your life. And then we still do it because we're so set on sinning. That's David's moment. Guess how that story ends? 70,000 Israelites die because of David's sin who was incited by Satan. Then you go to Job, pretty famous story. In Job chapter one, I just read a few verses for us, just for the sake of context. Beginning in verse six, it says, there's a day when sons of God appeared before God and sons of God appeared before God and Satan is right there. Verse six, Satan came with them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Does that not sound like 1 Peter 5, 8? Guess what? In the Greek, it's exactly the same words. Peter is taking the imagery from Job 1, 6 and 7 when he's trying to describe Satan's actions in 1 Peter. So Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answers the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But I challenge you, put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will certainly curse you to your face. That's the accusation Satan lobs against Job. His loyalty, his allegiance to you, God, is rooted in his possessions and his materialism. Once you take all that away, he will curse you to your face. So God says, have at it. Then we go to chapter two. In verses four through six, repeat. Right? Satan shows up again. He has done lots of damage to Job's property. Everything but his physical health is gone. And so then Satan says to the Lord, skins for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now, touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. In other words, God says, fine, I'll take the challenge. I know how faithful he is. I know his faith. Go ahead. Destroy his health. You just can't kill him. Twice, Satan accused Job of being willing to curse God 
if God would take away all that he had from him. Where's the line for you? What does God have to take away from you for you to curse God to his face? Is it your possessions? Is it a relationship? Is it your career? Is it your health? What? Job thought that the line, uh, Satan thought that the line with Job was his blessings from God. Where's your line? Or will you say with Job, are we only going to receive blessings from God and not curses, not difficulties? And he worshiped him in the middle of all that. And then you have the rest of the book of Job to explain all that happened. Is there a line that God can't cross with you before you say enough is enough, God, I'm done with you. Lots of people who profess to be Christians walk away. I've had closest friends, leaders in this church walk away completely into the occult. Is there a line with you? Or whatever accusation Satan casts against you, you will be faithful. Whatever God gives you, you will embrace the good and the bad. Satan's goal in all of this is to find that weakness and to push and to put pressure as much as possible until your faith cracks, crumbles, collapses. That's what he wants. And I hope you understand that. He did that with Judas. Twice it says, Satan entered Judas. And we know what happened after that. And Jesus said of Judas, it would have been better for him not to have been born at all because of his betrayal of Jesus Christ. But Satan entered him. He allowed for Satan to influence him. It happened with Peter twice. In Matthew 16, when Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Remember that? Because as it was in Genesis 3, where Satan initially wanted to catapult the entire human race into sin, and in whatever way possible, make sure that they never get saved. He now tries to change God's plan of redemption by making Peter get in the way of Jesus and the cross. When Jesus starts talking about the cross, Peter says, that will never happen to you, sir. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking of man's things, not God things. God's things. Happened with Peter again. Satan was so successful with Judas in those final days of Jesus' life that he went after Peter in Luke 22, 31 and 33. And Jesus says to Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, once you've repented and come back, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. Satan has so much chutzpah 
that he demands of God to go after Peter. And that is an aggressive, hostile term only used here in the New Testament. He wants to sift you as wheat, eliminate you. That's the meaning of that word, to sift you, to limit you, to destroy you. Again, also here in the New Testament. But here's where we find hope and encouragement. But I have prayed for you. You guys, listen, you are in the middle of the temptation and you're making a decision. Will I sin or will I not sin? Guess what's happening in exactly the same moment? Jesus is praying that you don't sin, that I don't sin. Man, I hope that makes you emotional and makes you love Christ more. He could be doing something else, creating another world. In that moment, he's thinking of you. He's praying for you. He doesn't want you to sin. Satan only wants you to sin. And then in John 17, Jesus prays again. I ask you, don't take him from this world, but please protect them from the evil one. And then it says a couple of verses later, I'm not just praying for the disciples, the 11. I'm praying for all the future disciples. So we have two different gospels saying the same thing. Jesus is praying for us and our protection from Satan and our protection from sin. He doesn't want our faith to crumble. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. And he keeps praying. So then Jesus says to Peter, And again, make sure you get the chronology right. That's before Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus warns him, this is about to happen. If you were warned, like in five minutes, that 10 minutes from now, you're going to about to be tempted to sin. Would you not be super cautious and super alert and super careful to not fall? And yet Jesus warns him and he still falls three times. But we know, thankfully, he repents, weeps bitterly, runs away, so ashamed. And then Jesus restores him in John 21. But in Luke 22, he says to him, okay, when you have been restored, strengthen the brothers. It's what Hebrews 12, 12 says, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. You guys, those are the commands to us that we need to encourage other believers, strengthen the weak, the feeble, those who are struggling, those who are about to fall down. We do need to get into their life and help them and interfere between them and sin. And this is what Paul says about his own life, Philippians 2.17. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. We are talking about Satan going after our faith, Jesus praying for our faith. And Paul says, I am being sacrificed, poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. That is what the Christian does. He sacrifices, she sacrifices, she and he pour out their life for the service and the sacrifice of the faith of another believer. And Paul says, and in this I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. In you too, I urge, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. If you want joy in the Christian life, sacrifice your life to stabilize the faith of another believer. And then you have fourfold joy. That's Paul's life commitment. But Satan doesn't stop. 
the sower and the seed metaphor or a parable rather the sower and the seed and there's multiple types of soils but one of them falls on rocky ground and guess what it says right away and satan comes and takes the seed away satan in certain individuals doesn't lose a single second of time to grab the word of god so that there's no possibility of any any inkling of fruit, any inkling of growth, spiritual faith in that individual. That's how aggressive he is. He won't even let some people entertain the possibility of believing in God. But it gets better or worse, maybe. He has so much chutzpah. He goes after the son of God. You know, Luke 4. You know, Matthew 4, you know, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. When Satan, after 40 days of Jesus' fasting, comes to him and he tempts him in three categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And Jesus responds every single time with scripture. But he thinks that he can cause Jesus to fall. Otherwise, why would he do this? He caused Adam and Eve to fall. He caused Judas to fall. He caused Peter to fall. Maybe I can get Jesus to fall. Again, the ultimate aim is to derail the sovereign plan of salvation. We can't allow Jesus to get to the cross and save humanity. So I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to use Judas. I'm going to use Peter. I'm going to go straight after Christ. If I need to, to derail the plan of God. Now, before Matthew 4, before Jesus turns 30 and that happens, in Matthew 2, Herod wants to kill all the babies. Revelation 12, verse 4, gives us a commentary on what happened in Matthew 12. It says this, The dragon stood before the woman, which is Israel, who is about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he may devour the child. It's the imagery of Mary giving birth to Jesus and then Satan coming in through Herod and wanting to kill that child. The language of devour is used again. So he went after Jesus shortly after birth. He went after him at 30 years of age. And then he goes after him through the Jewish leaders. John eight forty, And then verse 44, Jesus says to them, you want to kill me. You're trying to kill me. And then Jesus explains how he knows this. Because you are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Doesn't stand the truth because there's no truth in him. So Jesus knows the character of Satan, that he's a killer. And now he's using the Jewish leaders to try to kill Jesus. You know those stories multiple times. Some have tried to push him off a cliff. Some tried to kill him. Uh, John 11 gets real serious when they convene a council and make a decision. We're going to kill him. Enough is enough. He's about to destroy our position of power. Guys, Satan doesn't mess around. That's how arrogant he is. But remember, that same arrogance that gives him the ability or the confidence to go after Jesus is what caused them to fall. We talked about this two weeks ago, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. This is what Satan said as he was transitioning from a perfect, the most beautiful, the highest elevated angel to the devil. 
He says this, I will ascend to heaven. I will be like the most high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. He thought in his pride, he was on par with God. That same pride gives him the confidence to go after Jesus. Satan continually prowls with one aim to destroy you, to swallow you up, to devour you as he tried with Jesus and many, many others. That was true in Genesis 3. It's true in Revelation 20. Revelation 20 is at the end of the millennial kingdom. After Jesus has reigned for a thousand years. Satan is released one more time. And guess what it says of him? He will come out to deceive the nations, to gather them against the holy city, the saints, to destroy them. And then fire comes from heaven and guess what? Devours them. I love the devour appearing every so often in the Bible. Satan wants to devour the irony, the fire from heaven devours Satan or the the armies and then the devil is thrown into the lake of fire. So Satan is prowling, he's roaring, he is seeking, he's moving around this earth looking for someone to devour. At the same time with the same exact imagery of movement and seeking, we read this about God. Second Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. Satan is moving, God's moving. Here's God's aim. That he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And in Proverbs 34.15, Psalm, Psalm 34.15, which is Peter's favorite psalm because he cites it multiple times. It says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. He's getting that imagery from Second Chronicles, from Psalm 34, because he says, you've got two individuals moving around the globe. One seeks to destroy you. One seeks to bless you and support you. And so what do you do? Well, back in First Peter 5, and we're almost there, almost done. You resist his attacks. That's our third and final strategy. You resist his attacks. James, who was Peter's very close friend, they've seen a lot of very, very unique situations. Um, and Jesus, like the transfiguration, for example, they were in moments with Jesus that other disciples weren't. This is what James says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Very similar language. Verse nine, resist him. Firm in your faith. So this is how you resist the devil. Four ways, quickly. First, firmness of faith. You resist him and then there's four ways that follow. Firm in your faith. Peter has talked about faith before. You're protected by the power of God through faith in chapter one, verse five. In verse seven of chapter one, the proof of your faith is more precious than gold. In verse nine of chapter one, the outcome of your faith is the salvation of your soul. In verse 21 of chapter 1, your faith and hope is in God. And here's the fifth and final use of faith in this letter. Resist him in your faith. Firm in your faith. So faith is used by God to give you hope. It's used by God to bring you into salvation. 
And here, God says, you have that faith, now use it to resist the devil. And the firmness imagery here, it's firm like concrete, like a solid cinder block. Something that is immovable, no matter how much pressure Satan puts on you, you will not move, you are resisting. Notice it doesn't say flee. The Bible never tells you to flee Satan. It always says, stand firm, resist, and he will flee from you. The second way is by fellowshipping with the suffering saints. And we see that in verse 9, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers who are in the world. So now he says, look, suffering is happening. I get it. It's horrible. It's, it's evil, but it's something that the other Christians are also experiencing. And you have been paying attention to the news and what's happening in Afghanistan. And the Christians are being executed by the Taliban. I hope you're praying for them because they're literally being killed by the satanic religion of Islam. And so Peter says, remember other Christians are suffering, so you are experiencing the same sufferings that are experienced by those brothers in the rest of the world. In Revelation 6, we see a scene in heaven where there are saints who have been, who have been killed and they are praying and begging God to stop the murder and the martyrdom of Christians on this earth. And they keep saying, how long, how long, how long, O Lord? Revelation 6, 9 through 11. And God says, just a little bit longer. Until that final number of the martyrs for the faith in Jesus Christ will be accomplished. God has a number. We don't know what it is, but there's a number. And once that's done, then suffering ends. And the goal in all this, verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, it's temporary. The God of grace will, will bring you into his eternal glory. He's the one who called you into it. You've suffered for a little while, verse 10. In verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you are distressed by various trials. Chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, don't be surprised at the trials in front of you. 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. It's a promise. So Christians are being persecuted and will continue to be persecuted. If you understand that and you begin to sympathize with them, and then you become a co-sharer in their suffering, you will understand, okay, I can move through this as well because I'm not alone. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, momentary light affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. Until we experience Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, There will no longer be any death, mourning, crying, pain. All those things have passed away. Until then, there is suffering. So we resist Satan by being firm in our faith, by fellowshipping with suffering saints, and then remembering the Father of grace, the God of all grace. He is our Father. We talked about that two weeks ago. This is the only place in the Bible, in the New Testament rather, where God is called the God of grace. But he embodies grace to such a degree that in Hebrews 4, it says you appeal and you approach the throne of grace. Where God sits, that place becomes the throne of grace. Because he's that eager to give you grace. And he represents grace to such a degree. Through and through. It's in his character. And finally, because of your future glory. That's how you resist. You remember your future glory. And that's in the middle of verse 10. He called you to his eternal glory in Christ. 
So the reason we're able to endure all this is because we anticipate this glory. And just a quick note, it's very clear that Peter attributes the suffering of the saints to satanic hostility. Satan is behind that suffering. It's very clear here. So if you want to avoid suffering, get this. You have to extract yourself from the community of the saints. You have to give up on the gospel and completely walk away. That's the context. But if you are going to be in the community of the saints and you are going to fight Satan with your faith, you will suffer. You get to pick what you want. But there's a glory that's awaiting you. In chapter four, verse 14, it says, the spirit of glory rests on you, which means he sustains you, he empowers you to move forward and to be successful against Satan. And then God makes a promise at the end of verse 10. He will himself, he alone will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. These are all synonyms, but there is a progression here. God will continue to perfect you, to mature you, to reset certain things in your life that are off. It's an image of functionality. You are not functioning perfectly. I'm not functioning perfectly, not physically, spiritually. So God continues to purify and chisel away the things in your life that are making you function inappropriately, that make you flicker spiritually, like a bad bulb. God says, I will do this. I will continue to perfect you. So there's a promise of progression towards maturity and then confirmation that he will support you, stabilize you, and he will strengthen you to endure. And then finally, he will establish you. And that is the word for foundation. He will make you super stable. So the maturity keeps moving. He gives you the power. He gives you the strength. And he gives you the stable foundation on which to stand. Because of all that, verse 11, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the only one we aim to please. The only one we aim to glorify. So what's next? How do we do this successfully? Practically. Those are the strategies from this passage. I think we need to adopt Augustine's mindset when we fight our sin. Augustine, in his autobiography called The Confessions, writes about his own struggle with sin, primarily lust and pride. He lived with a concubine, a girlfriend for 15 years, had a child with her. He pursued the highest level of rhetoric education in Carthage, then ended up being a professor in Milan and then in Rome. And he was all in into sin, sin, sin. He says of himself, I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. But my real need was for you, my God, who are the food of the soul. I wasn't aware of this hunger. I was willing to steal and and steal I did, although I was not compelled by any lack. I was at the top of the school of rhetoric. I was pleased with my superior status and swollen with conceit. It was my ambition to be a good speaker for the unhallowed and inane purpose of gratifying human vanity. And then he ends up in Milan and overhears a child 
from a window in a building, say, pick up and read. He was so convicted by his own sin, all that he had done in his life. That he goes home, opens up the Bible. The Bible opens up to Romans 13, verse 13, and he reads this. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality or promiscuity, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. His life was a life of lust. God allowed him to read that passage first. And he said, enough is enough. I'm done. He becomes a Christian that moment. And then this is what he says. How sweet, and it's on the screen. How sweet all at once it was for me to rid of those fruitless joys, which I had once feared to lose and was now glad to reject. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood, you who are brighter than all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts, you who surpass all honor in themselves. At last, my mind was free from the gnawing anxieties of ambition and gain, from wallowing in filth and scratching the itching sore of lust. I began to talk to you freely, O Lord, my God, my light, my riches, and my salvation." What he's getting at is choose a greater love. Don't be pursuing the lesser loves, lust, ambition, materialism, things that sucked him into sin. He says, no, once my eyes were opened, I saw you as my light, my riches, my salvation, sweeter than all pleasure. So I think what we need to do to be effective against sin and Satan is to invest into understanding the sweetness and the beauty of Christ. Fight temptation and the love for it and the desire for it with a greater love. Something superior. We will always choose a superior element of satisfaction. Let that be Christ in your life. And you and I will be effective as we strive against the devil. Let me pray for us. Lord God, even in the middle of persecution and opposition and suffering, Peter says, you don't have the right to stop fighting Satan. No matter how difficult life gets, we fight. And we don't get a break until we see you face to face. This passage is sobering. It's sobering for all of us who are believers because we understand the fierceness with which Satan opposes us. But it's also serious for those who may not be Christians because I hope now they understand exactly what Satan is after in their life. His goal is to destroy them. And bring them to hell with him. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would take this passage and apply it to the hearts of every single person in this room. And especially those who are not walking with you faithfully or maybe have not started walking with you. Pray that they would see their need for a savior from their lust they would see the need to stop fighting you 
and giving in to the Satan and repent, confess their sins and live for you. And you promise to forgive every single sin, no matter how dirty and dark. You promise to make us as clean as snow, whiter than snow. Oh God, we appreciate and love and embrace those promises. And for us who are following you, we keep sinning because we keep believing the lie. And it's on us. We're foolish. Every time he enters our world, we need to remember he's a liar. He will not deliver what he promises. That one more experience with sin will not satisfy. It will not end all desire for sin. So Lord God, help us to fight. Fight as you call us to fight and remember the lessons from the Bible. All those who fought and when they fell, you called them to repentance and they came and they repented and you forgave. And that's our life cycle as well. So forgive us of our sins. The ones we've committed this week, the ones we've committed today, forgive us and help us to find hope and a longing for you in every single moment of our temptation from this point forward. Help us to remember while we are about to sin, you are praying that we don't. And help that truth pull us back from the cliff that sends us into the spiral of guilt and more and more sin. I pray this because we really do want to honor you. Amen.